Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, and we are speaking today with Randall Hall, professor of music at Augustana College in Illinois, and the only known purveyor of the theurgic saxophone. Randall, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, the theurgic saxophone, anyone with any sense at this point is sitting up and taking strict notice. <laughs> but before we get onto the theurgic saxophone, you're a professor of music, you're obviously a saxophone player, and it won't surprise anyone on this podcast that you use Western esoteric materials in your work. So I wonder if you could outline a kind of resume of how you got from being just a guy blowing on a saxophone to someone who's um, writing pieces like the Chaldean Oracles, which actually include Greek text from the Chaldean Oracles in the music. Yeah. <laughs> You're chuckling. It, it, when, yeah. you, when you say well, it that way, it does seem like quite an yeah. interesting itinerary. Yeah. So probably the first piece of information to understand what I'm doing is that um, the best way I describe my work as a musician is to take all of the images you get when you hear saxophone and then forget them because those are not me. Right. Um, for most people, as soon as you say saxophone, you're imagining the jazz tradition. And although saxophone obviously has a storied tradition there, I'm doing music that's quite different. Um, the probably simplest way to describe the music type of music I make is experimental. And so this draws on a lot of the more uh, avant-garde music of the 20th century, going back to Schoenberg, Webern, um, and the whole post-tonal scene. Um, it also draws on some of the rhythmic developments of Stravinsky. But the big element comes from the 1960s and 70s, uh, what some writers call the new virtuosity, which was basically the idea of what can an instrument do besides just play pitches as we normally think of them on the piano? Um, and so it creates a whole um, a, a whole host of other sound possibilities. In addition to microtones, which I would define as notes that fall between the keys on the piano, so closer together, the saxophone can do some amazing percussive techniques. It can use multiphonics, which is the multiple production of simultaneous sounds tone color variations, uh, vibrato manipulation, um, it list kind of goes on and on. And so at an early stage in my development, I became pretty uh, intrigued with this whole um, musical possibility. So you started playing the sax, you got into this 20th century avant-garde experimental style. And incidentally, listeners should remember your reference to percussive qualities of the mm -hmm. saxophone, because when we get to your piece to the Chaldean Oracles a bit later on, you're going to hear some stuff that sounds like a sort of a drum solo, actually. But yeah. it's just you using the valves in a really creative way. But then at some point, you had a fateful meeting with Iamblichus. Or is that y jumping ahead? Yeah, that's jumping ahead a bit. I, w I would say the first sort of esoteric encounter I had with music was sitting in my music history course as a junior in college. And the teacher started talking about the harmony of the spheres. And at that time, I really didn't understand anything about it, but something caught my interest. I sort of remember sitting up straight in class and my eyes getting big, like, what is that? And sort of came away with from that with just this idea 
that somehow music was tapping into something bigger than just our feelings um, at a really profound level. Um, and that kind of just, <laughs> that kind of went in into the mix and just sort of sat there for a while. And that would take um, years and probably decades to kind of, um, to make sense out of that. Um, the, the sort of next big step, um, I was fortunate enough um, to go study in Paris and be surrounded by all of those all of that history. At the same time, when I, well, when I arrived, I uh, was reading Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum. Oh, no, you're was another <laughs> gateway another, drug. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, sort of being overwhelmed by it. And I was like, what is this stuff? But uh, that, you know, is a good overview, a nice sampler of almost everything <laughs> in the esoteric tradition. And so a lot of that, again, was just kind of going in. And after I came back, from France, I discovered the works of Joseph Campbell, actually, hmm. which really kind of brought in, in his work on mythology, kind of gave more of a vocabulary, a way of, of addressing all of these different uh, strands. And so I was very, I, I guess you could say, formally I was pursuing mythology, but this idea of sound playing a critical role of sort of the interface between material and non-material realities that had uh, always stayed with me. But I felt like everybody kind of talked about it, but nobody really documented anything or I wasn't getting so close to the um, the original sources until I, I started digging into some of the Plato texts. Um, but the I guess what I was looking for is some explanation of how to make music that had these qualities. And I can kind of remember the fateful day when I read a comment by Jocelyn Godwin that there really essentially isn't, <laughs> isn't a, a musical technique for making the harmony of the spheres, the music of the spheres, that people tend to take whatever music they're interested in making and project that back as this special kind of music that can sort of cross the bounds between material and immaterial. And at that point, I kind of threw my hands up in frustration. And then I guess I was trying to just understand something about ritual. And um, I, that's when I came across Jai Imblicus in the, the on the mysteries. I thought, well, this sounds promising. And I was, um, is it, the, it's the Clark translation, right? That's the current Dylan one. Dylan Hirschbell Clark. Yeah, that would be the one. So I was reading the preface and it started to talk about these vocus mystica and i thought well what are those and what what caught my interest there again was the idea of using something sound based to to make this interface between material and non-material and so you sort of just skipped ahead to the pertinent <laughs> passages on on those and then from there discovered the greek magical papyri and here is all of this this material um in the absence of any real traditional um, music techniques. So I guess I should make an aside. Uh, I was also looking into Ficino, and the one thing in the uh, Three Books of Life, he actually does make an attempt on giving you some tools for how do you create this, um, how do you create Orphic hymns, or how do you create um, songs that will address these kinds of esoteric, or embed this esoteric stuff into them. And so I gave him kudos for that, although 
I didn't find them particularly useful as a as a as a practicing artist. So um, how come? Bit lightweight, bit wishy washy. Well, they're a little bit vague. If you need, if you're trying to invoke a certain character for observe this particular group known for that character and then see what kind of songs they're singing and then you can well oh, I, see. I, I don't have mi- i don't have many friggins in my my life so <laughs> so it wasn't very so helpful um i sort of came to terms with the idea that i would have to in- create my own kind of music um because i think essentially that's what everybody was doing anyway and so Looking at Ficino, looking at the Orphic hymns, um, and well, I guess I should say also that as a creative artist, I'm less bound to facts than historians or, or other kinds of people. So um, I'm allowed to sort of play with history and put pieces together where I want. And so I, the, the image of Orpheus as sort of a shaman really captured my imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started listening to a lot of music of the Aulos, uh, sort of the ancient Greek double-piped instrument, and really just liking that sound. Actually, maybe here would be a good place to put in a little segment of some Aulos music. And the Aulos is sort of, as a wind player, is is dear to me. A lot of this discussion of, of Orphic music or theurgic music deals with the lyre. And so um, as a wind player, the, the Aulos is a, is a more, uh, is closer to saxophone by quite a bit. So I, I freely choose to associate the Aulos and the saxophone and the sort of frenetic qualities associated with the Aulos I just have decided also, also go with saxophone. Um but I started working um, to sort of well, and I'm this. I think my this is purely speculative, but my suspicion is is that the origins of modern music, thinking of the birth of opera around 1600 with 
uh, Monteverdi and his opera or- Orfeo, um, is much more indebted to sort of the Renaissance esoteric tradition than most people are aware or care to think about. Um, it seems clear to me that Ficino is trying to do essentially a th- theurgic ritual with his Orphic singing. Uh, he's using these songs to to invoke a certain mystical state, I guess we could say. Um, and when there are certain recordings of Orfeo where you can hear the vocal ornaments very clearly. And there was a complex set of, of kind of unusual vocal ornamentation at the time, which we often don't get in recordings because most singers are very concerned with the lyricism of their voice and not with these sort of interesting trills and tremolos that um, are in the, in the score. But boy, it doesn't sound like singing as much as it sounds like incantation to me. Right. Uh, it sounds like they're really doing something. Um, and you can look at the, you know, the writings from that time, and people are very concerned with the imitative power of music to capture all of this stuff. And so my speculation is that if we use Ficino's Orphic singing as a model, I wonder if the origins of opera really isn't just a real a modern attempt at creating an elaborate theurgic ritual and so that's an idea i put in uh so if we take that idea of the birth of opera and we take the idea of orpheus as a shaman descending into the underworld uh and this time not playing his lyre but his his aulos which again is just my invention um i wrote a little piece called when i walk the dark roads of hades which is a line from the orphica and in Monteverdi's opera, Posento Spirito is the aria where Orpheus uses the power of his singing to make his passage into the underworld. And so I simply took the vocal line there and rewrote Monteverdi's music to adapt it to modern experimental saxophone technique, which is designed to evoke this image of this archaic shamanic ritual. So I don't know how many how much fact is in all of that, but again, that's not my <laughs> that's not really my worry. Well, let's have a listen.
Okay, so that's the early esoteric period of um, Randall Hall. But it gets it gets more seriously esoteric, doesn't it? Or a little more I, a little more involved in going back to the sources. Yeah, well, I mean, I was I was, I was trying to do my homework, even though I've absolved myself from any sort of um, scholarly accuracy. I'm still I try to do my homework and cover what I can. But I I became very interested in these the Vocus Mystici or um, barbarian names, or however we want to refer to them. Yeah. So um, people might want to check out episode six of the podcast, where uh, Professor Daniel Ogden gives a really good rundown of what these Vokes Magikai, Vokes Mysticae, Nomina Barbara, what they are. These basically words that don't have a lexical meaning in the host language. They often are taken from another language, and they're often a garbled version of words in another language. So we're talking about the kind of thing where you'll have a Greek magical papyrus and there's a bunch of words in it that can sort of be traced back to Hebrew, but they're not proper Hebrew. And these are the magical words. Precisely. And the idea that you have these sounds that don't have meanings, but they do have specific formal arrangements. And if you look at the Greek magical papyri, you can see processes of transformation where you eliminate one start with a single letter and add letters until you get the whole thing one at a time or the reverse of that where you're subtracting letters but if you're taking sounds that don't have lexical meaning but they have clear patterns and they have clear processes of transformation essentially that's a definition of music right um and so that was very intriguing to me. Again, I'm looking for this idea, how can I recreate some sort of authentic, archaic, or ancient approach to sound? So this seemed like an intriguing thing. At the same time I was discovering this, I was reading the work of a Vedic scholar named Fritz Stahl, um, who takes the fairly controversial position that Vedic mantras are are all meaningless, and he extends this to a theory of ritual that says all ritual is meaningless, only that it's all um, just patterned. It's a series of rules that don't mean anything, but we, we have to perform the rules correctly. Now, I should say that a, a Hindu friend of mine says he's completely wrong, that there are meaning to all of these things. And I'm not prepared to say that ritual doesn't mean anything. But um, I was very intrigued with this idea of focusing on patterning. So if we consider also, okay, so as a music teacher... I would teach 20th century music every spring, and I would be teaching Arnold Schoenberg's 12-tone technique, which, um, if we can say that quickly, it involves creating a, a pattern, an ordered pattern of all 12 pitches uh, that are then put through certain transformations, and that becomes the raw material for creating the piece. It's a way of, of assuring the equality of all, all of the pitches. Uh, most listeners find it a bit difficult. I find it really wonderful, but that's besides the point. But when I was each year, I sort of spend my, do my dog and pony show on the 12 tone technique. There seemed to be something to me cabalistic about this in the fact that there was just these ways of transforming basic material. Um, I should say I've never found any connection between Arnold Schoenberg and the Kabbalah, but Though he was um, again, Jewish. He was Jewish. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. So <laughs> it's one of these in intriguing lines of inquiry. Hmm. Um, but so all of these things went together in my mind, and I wanted to really explore a way to bring – I guess I should back up a little bit. 
I started to experiment with using the Volkus Mystica as a as, well as an outline for a piece of music. And essentially, what I did is I took one of these. Uh, I forget which number now, but one of the Greek magical papyri, there's a, uh, a magical word given and it's, it, it, you just keep repeating it, subtracting a letter each time. And so I gave each letter a short musical motive and then just arranged the musical motives according to how the letters came so that you just keep repeating this passage a bit shorter each time. And then it gets a little bit shorter. Yeah, you drop off motives as you go. And that worked worked okay, but it became a little static musically. And so the the decision to start including the Kabbalah was really a practical musical one. How can I create some more variation with within the musical material really just because it needed more musical contrast? So <laughs> you're, you're a well-read guy, and our, a lot of our listeners are well-read. So... Explain what you mean by Kabbalah. What specific techniques are you looking at here and using? Well, yeah, sure. Um, and I should say that this this is really an example of a, a cultural appropriation. I've just, in a very mercenary way, stolen techniques and taken them out of context. And basically, and I and I won't be able to recall all the names of the techniques, but the first one is the idea that that one letter is replaced by or substituted by maybe three or four letters. Um, so that's one technique. And that works quite nicely musically because you can take a, a certain motive and then you can essentially expand it by this addition. Uh, the other is the idea that you can fold the alphabet on itself and come with a little substitution code. So, for example, if A is, re is uh, replaced by Z and B is replaced by Y. Um, and so I just can wrap the scale around itself. And so... For example, C can be replaced by B, and C sharp can be replaced by B flat, something like that. And then one that was intriguing but tedious to use was gematria, uh, right. where I just assign numerical values to the pitches, and then. And sorry to interrupt. Are you are you working in a yeah. totally twelve tone dodecaphonic no, no, mindset, no. or is it, I, is I, it scalar? I, I should. I, it's scalar, um, and I should say the the thing that was really in. Where 12-tone comes in is not, uh, I don't really do any 12-tone music, but what is interesting is the idea that there are rules or patterns for replacing different material. And so if you think more broadly about 12-tone, uh, it's often referred to as serialism, meaning things in a series. And you can put anything in a series. You can put, um, you know, toy cars or marbles or coins in a series. And where Schoenberg decided to put pitches in a series, I think it's a little more interesting to put um, motives in a series. And so, so like you riffs can, for, to the, to yeah, the man yeah, in the yeah, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just small little chunks of music that probably don't won't be so meaningful by themselves, but you can combine them to make a longer theme. And then it works pretty nicely when you just then rearrange these these little, almost like a syllable. Um and yeah, and so well, how am I going to organize these transformations? Well, I'll use these texts. And so essentially, what I've been doing is encoding either magic words from the the magical papyri, or my big pieces on the Chaldean oracles, where I've actually encoded the Greek uh, into the music. So each letter in the text receives a musical motive, 
and then as the letters move around just in the the way language works uh the musical these little tiny musical chunks are then rearranged to create new ideas you actually based it on the text of a given of given verses from the Chaldean oracles yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, well, I you'll did, have yeah. to g- give us those so that when we uh, when we listen to that piece a bit <laughs> later on in the in this interview, people can uh, consult yeah. the original. But before we get to those oracles, I think we we now know enough about what you're doing musically, perhaps to have another listen. So, shall we listen to one of the Wokes Magikai, Mystikai? Sorry, Wokes Mystikai. Okay. So this is Wokes Mystikai One, Abu Lafia. Okay. Now, okay. If I'm if I'm not wrong, you took you actually took the name Abu Lafia as the prima materia for this piece, did you not? Yeah, it's well, it's a little past. This is okay. This is not authentic Kabbalistic material or anything from the magical papyri. This is is uh, a little text from Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco, and this was this was really my first encounter with Kabbalah, where he explains uh, they're using their you know, when was the book written in 83 or something? So their new computer, and he's using the find replace function in the computer to demonstrate these Kabbalistic transformations. And the text, if I recall, is um, they named this computer Abu Lafa after Abrahim Abu Lafa, right. the Spanish Kabbalist. So because, he's sort of the father of this kind of recombinatory approach to letters and using them as meditation tools for those who are totally unfamiliar with that branch of Kabbalah. Abu Lafa is a big name in the taking a Hebrew letter, having it sort of float in front of your mind's eye, then changing it to another letter, then changing it back, then doing that a hundred times, and then having four letters come in and all this kind of recombinatory stuff, using the raw materials of reality, which for him are the Hebrew alphabet through which God mm. created everything, to sort of blow your own mind, I guess. Then that's how I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> I understand it. But so the text the text in the in the Echo novel is the character orders Abu, the computer, to replace all the A's with K's and all the U's with L's or something like that in order to make a passage look finish. Right. Um, and so so this was an experiment in taking all the letters in English. They all get their little motives. The motives interact based on how the letters fall. And then when he performs the transformation in the text, I perform that musically by inserting uh, my K and L themes in the different places which which has a nice musical expansion all right of the text let's give yeah. it a listen
So <laughs> another Vox Mystica from your series is number three, the title of which is A Long String of Vowels. And I would say it can only be one of two things, either a salutation in Hawaiian or a magic name from the Greek magical Pyre. So it's Aoi, I don't want to say it because I might invoke something by accident. Invoke something. But yeah. the, you get these strings um, of vowels in the, those who are familiar with ancient magic texts. As, and the Greek magical papyri are just the ones that we have the most of, right? Because of Egypt's climate. Right. This stuff may well have been more universal. You get these strings of vowels, Greek vowels, and demotic vowels, and so on. And they are just powerful. There's a lot of theories as to whether they were chanted, whether they were sung, whether indeed that the letters had note value and they were maybe a kind of musical notation. But you've done something here with this thematic locus. Yeah. And well, this is actually my own uh, magical word that I, I invented. And so I we get to the crazy name um, because I came up with a when the spirit of the Greek magical papyri focused on vowels and then created my own order of substitution, which generates itself. Uh, and then again, I simply assigned musical motives, sort little musical chunks to each of the letters and then create more variation in the music. I applied uh, some of the Kabbalistic techniques of rotating the, the musical alphabet. And then uh, as I made those rotations, um, I had also assigned numerical values in the spirit of Gematria. And then as you rotate them, you create different musical values. So to get them back to their original numerical value, I had to add more material to make the numbers work out, which was kind of an interesting way of just of letting the piece generate its own itself to a, a large extent. All right, let's give it a listen. So that's our Wokis Magikai selections. And um, let's move on and talk about the Chaldean oracles, uh, a fragmentary hexameter um, group of texts from antiquity, probably second century CE, very dear to my heart and to the hearts of many of our listeners. Before we get to the music, how did you encounter the oracles and sort of get into them? 
Well, as I was discovering Iamblichus, and of course he's interested in this idea of theurgy, um, and to the extent we can understand theurgy as ritual practice, ritual practice to help bridge the divide between material and immaterial realities, I thought, well, that's that's kind of what all of this has been leading to from that first hearing of the music of the spheres uh, and looking at all of this stuff is the idea of how to use a concert, a modern concert as a sort of initiatory format for a mystical experience. I'm much less interested in the idea of music as just purely emotion and feeling um, as, as we commonly think of it now, but of as well as sort of a place for the interface between well, again, material and immaterial. So yeah, getting into this kind of theoretical side of things, you're, you're definitely not in the romantic tradition. One, one might almost say you're revolting against romanticism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, 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 yeah, I think I, or certainly the popular conception of romanticism. I mean, well, the artist we, as creator expressing your individual self and all this kind of thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's fair to say. Um, it's, Really, along the way, I started reading a lot of Ananda Kumaraswamy, um, who is very critical of of our modern ideas of art as purely an aesthetic thing. He's interested in um, art as knowledge, specifically a sort of spiritual or or intellectual in the Platonic sense uh, that that kind of knowledge. Right. And so, I, I mean, we have a lot of ways to, to maybe think about that transformation of consciousness or however you want to think about it. But, and I, and I think some of the confusion comes from those sorts of experiences are profound and carry an, an emotional meaning for us. But I think it's a little bit more profound than I like that girl, that girl doesn't like me, you know, she's with my best friend or whatever, you know, as we can hear in the teenage uh, pop scene. Uh, we're thinking about much more profound level of of feeling, which I think is the byproduct of this kind right. of right. So the feeling isn't the point. The feeling is the byproduct. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> In a word. So is this the ritual symbolic perspective that you talk about in stuff you've written, or is there more to be said about the ritual symbolic perspective? I mean, I think I think that's I think that's that's right. Um, the you know another an in, interesting. Um, writer I stumbled across was an anthropologist, Harvey Whitehouse, who talks about, and um, I actually was found him a book on the Greek mysteries by Isabaudin, has an introduction to Greek mystery cults. Yeah. Well, he, he mentions White, White, White House in that book, in one of the footnotes, and he talks about the idea, or Whitehouse's theory is modes of religiosity, and that we have doctrinal versus imagistic modes and doctrinal ones being based on a certain um, theological knowledge or doctrinal knowledge. Have you signed up to believe the right things? Um, I think it's, it, he talks about uh, the idea that you, if you go to, to church and you recite the Apostles' Creed, you might have memorized the Apostles' Creed, but you probably don't have any memory of ever of a single instance of reciting it. You just sort of absorb the content versus the imagistic which is not really concerned with doctrinal or theological or philosophical points. It's about having a ritual impact, an experience that's so profound that you may only do it once in your life, but you refer to that forever and are profoundly moved by that. Well, that's much more what 
I think people try to do in a concert experience or through art is they want to create that imagistic impact. Again, the idea of creating that in a concert, and I think actually this morning I was listening to your podcast on the Greek mysteries and you were discussing the idea of of the mysteries having these ritual initiations and these profound moments like that. And that that's largely lost in our culture. I think you're right about that. Yeah. And and I think for people since we're not we're we don't really grow up with an idea of ritual. It can be a little it's overwhelming. Not, it's not that we don't people, grow up with an idea of ritual, it's that we don't grow up with ritual. Exactly. And so for the average person who, I, I mean, it seems to me we have some kind of psycho-spiritual need for ritual. But if we don't have practice at it, we don't have opportunity for it, uh, it can be a bit overwhelming to go into a ritual environment for many people. And I think a concert becomes a sort of safe gateway for people who aren't familiar with ritual to experience something like a ritual. Right. Um, they can flex their temporary suspension of disbelief muscles that they've built up by watching films and going to concerts all their lives and sort of getting into another space mentally in a safe way that's approved culturally. Yeah. And if it feels a little bit overwhelming, then they can simply flip the switch back to, oh, but I'm in a concert. Right. So it's, it's okay. It's, it's all right. safe. It's nothing strange is going to happen. Um, yeah. And, and then I, I, do kind of think of the origin of art or the, the basic function of art to be at that ritual initiatory level, that that's really what it's about. And it's sort of been disconnected from that and become this feeling emotion only thing. Right. Let's move on to this piece of music, the Chaldean oracles. Is there anything you want to say about, we're not going to play the whole thing. Um, there's, it's, it's a, a composition in, in multiple parts, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a four movement piece. It's about 24 minutes long. And the idea there I did want to create a sort of substantial piece. And on a musical level I did want to write a piece that sort of highlighted some of the extended saxophone techniques that I like to play. Um but at the same time to sort of be part of this initiatory ritual thread that we've been talking about. And have, you know, reading about theurgy and Iamblichus and discovering these texts. And they're just, they're really beautiful, a lot of these. They're just, just, I find, well, I find them very moving in an emotional way <laughs> also. And then having kind of worked out some different compositional approaches in the Vocus Mysticae pieces, I simply took the, a few of these texts uh, I went ahead and took the Greek, even though I don't speak Greek, I haven't studied Greek at all. I took took the text in Greek and assigned my standard formula that we've heard now. The musical formula is assigned to each letter. I used some Kabbalistic uh, transformations of the text to to expand the text. And then I used some of the different Kabbalistic techniques as themes repeated to create transformations of them. And what I find musically really um, effective is that there's there's continuing variation to the material, but it's still consistent. So we don't um, lose track of it too much. And then the movements are arranged. The first one is very sort of introspective, um, which I think of as sort of disconnecting from regular reality. The second movement is very, is fast and virtuosic, which I think of as kind of a crazy dance happening. The 
third movement is very, um, again, sort of, well, psychedelic, uh, which I take as the sort of leaving regular reality. And then the last movement um, starts with this kind of percussive technique and then builds up to a pretty, pretty loud <laughs> um, sort of sound wave, which I take as the final revelation of the gods. Let's listen to the opening piece.
So, Randall, that was uh, the opening of the four-part Chaldean Oracles. Now, before we go any further, how can people whose uh, appetites have been whetted go and check out your music? Um, probably the simplest thing to do is to go to my website, which is www.randallhall.net. Got it. Um, and then that has links to upcoming concerts and CDs and so forth. And also some theurgic theory and sort of practice yeah. <laughs> material. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a, a blog which gets, which I dutifully post to either once a year or once every other year. Nice. Uh, which, but does uh, get sketch out a few of my ideas on uh, what I'm trying to do with this sort of theurgic music. Brilliant. And um, what does the future hold for you? What are you working on at the moment? And what kind of ideas do you have for musical um, production in the near future? Yeah. Um, what I'm working on right now is having too many irons in the fire. Um, I uh, currently, the, the main project right now is, is getting a, a good recording of all of the music that we've talked about. What, what, what we have today for the listeners is, is live recordings. So going into the studio and getting all of that done really well. I've sort of been the last few years and in, in what I'm, I consider my Greek period of stuff. So I'm try, trying to get all of the Greek music together for, um, either a CD or download edition. And, uh, so that's the main thing I am uh, working on some new pieces. I suppose it's okay to plug Augustana college this February. We'll be hosting the second annual shockingly modern saxophone festival. Is it literally um, called shockingly modern? It, this is the title is shockingly modern saxophone festival. I like it. Uh, which, uh, which comes from a former colleague of mine who, uh, described my music as shockingly modern. So you have to you have to take a when you get something like that you have to keep it so uh we're getting ready for that i'm writing some new music for that festival um and then i'm trying to do a little bit of uh more writing to sort of articulate some of the ideas that we have uh talked about today so the cd will be great or the the final production that you come up with will be amazing i, I really look forward to hearing it I suggest you do a vinyl, but of course that's just yeah. um, me and 10 other people who would buy it and no one, that's, right. <laughs> you'd be left with crates of records in your attic probably. Yeah. But I wonder how is this music going to make it into an initiatory concert context? Can you do the music? Can you stage the music in the way you want? Have you done this? Are you planning to do this? Like, do you have, do you have ideas about basically taking mm. people into the immaterial realms of noetic truth through the saxophone. Yeah, right. Um, so far, that has been done through tr the traditional concert format. Um, the, the pieces do have some some videos I made that I use in live performance, which give a little, little bit more um, atmosphere to them. Uh, I have been told some of my, by some of my friends who, who were sort of like-minded that, that they experienced something with the music, so that's encouraging. Yeah, so basically, this is, is just bringing it into the concert right now. Um, the idea of, of doing something more than that is intriguing, although I couldn't tell you what that looked like right now. Okay, we we'll watch this space. <laughs> Randall Hall, thanks very much for, for talking to us. Before Actually, before, before I let you go, I ran into you and your music at a recent conference called Trans States in Northampton in the Midlands. Um, how did you end up connecting with those guys and playing there? 
Yeah, I discovered that conference um, probably like a lot of people did. Is I was googling Alan Moore, okay, and <laughs> listening to to some of his ideas and heard him speak there, and then realized that his talk there was part of this whole conference and found myself listening to all of the lectures and being really fascinated by it. And you're talking about where where do you do does one present this kind of music? Uh, so I presented there and I also visited Canterbury at uh, University Christchurch there and they have their program on myth cosmology and the sacred and I last year two years ago I performed there. Um, hmm. And it's interesting is that Whereas a regular classical music crowd, because this is still, this is the modern, you know, the vanguard of classical music, but still in the classical music tradition. And a, a typical classical music uh, audience is much less interested in this music. But for people who have been studying myth, symbols, um, esoteric ideas, the, the response has been very enthusiastic for this these kinds of pieces. So it gives me a little courage that so something something is working. Brilliant. Well, speaking of the Trans State Conference, um, I'd like to leave this episode with a bootleg I made of you playing in the pub. So I should I should just set the scene. The Trans States Conference being just pretty radically experimental, pushing pushing the academic conference ritual framework about as far as it can go without breaking. Started out with a a buto performance. <laughs> Followed by you, with no introduction whatsoever, coming and blasting yeah. us with some Wokes Magikai on the saxophone at like nine in the morning. <laughs> Followed by a day of talks and stuff. And then in the evening, we broke and went to the pub. And in the pub, you had a laptop running some electronic sounds that you'd composed. Mm -hmm. And you were performing your piece on the saxophone, Keldian Oracles. And I managed to make a bootleg of the last seven, eight minutes of it. And I think that's a perfect outro music for this uh, interview. So I'll just thank you again very much and uh, stay esoteric. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Thank you.